We've been tracking the Psalms, as you know, in the last few weeks of the summer. And for some of you, this is a very good thing because you're familiar with the Psalms, and so it's very refreshing, the language you've already heard and the, the emotions you've heard before. But for others, it's not quite so refreshing. Um, <clears throat> it feels to some of you as if the, the psalmist complains a lot. Um, that's fair. Almost half of the Psalms, 73 of them, are Psalms of lament. So if it feels to you like he's always got a heavy heart, well, half the time he does. For some of you, uh, he repeats himself a lot. You prefer stories to poems, or if you must have poems, you want poems that rhyme, and his never do. You want stories that end well, and sometimes, like Alex's uh, message, uh, or the text for last week, it ends in darkness is my closest friend. This feels like something from Edgar Allan Poe. This doesn't seem like something inspired. I mean, this is what Lions fans say all the time. Darkness is my closest friend. And that's just the way it ends, you know. Uh, but um, if you'll stay with the Psalms, he always takes you out in a current of emotion. But stay with him. Don't try to counsel him, fix him, or bring him back. And he will always bring you back to the shore. So I hope you found in this uh, 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 information that's helpful for you. I, uh, when I was a young man uh, pastoring a church, I was often running into people with all kinds of situations. And one of the things about being a pastor is you don't get to pick what you think about every day. You run into things and situations that are brand new to you, and um, you have to learn to listen well and to think on your feet. And uh, the problem is, when I was running into all of these situations, I never knew what to say. People would either confess sins or they would talk about tragedies in their lives or they would talk about things they were afraid of and things when they were angry and, and I never really knew what to come back with to help them and yet I felt like I had to say something profound and so I did what we often do is we listen long enough to find or locate a file in our brain of something we've already thought about so we can download that onto people. You know what I mean? In other words, we take the conversation they wanted to have and we turn it into the conversation we wanna have because we don't know how to have another conversation. And so, one day, I discovered the Psalms. And I discovered a person or people who were writing things full of emotion. Every emotion that I was running into or that I had myself. Words from someone who was angry, words when they were afraid, words when they had sinned, words when they were confused, they were rejoicing, they were celebrating, they were feeling reverent. There was a wide array of different situations. The problem is that there was 150 Psalms and 
they go in every direction. It's not like a book. They're just all over the map. So how was I gonna learn these things? So I invented something that helped me become familiar with it. And I just give this to you before I get, I haven't started yet. Uh, <laughs> that maybe will be helpful to you. Um, I read through the Psalms, all 150, in five different translations. And finally, I settled on one, which by Eugene Peterson, this one here, uh, that I would read a psalm and I would meditate on that psalm in that day, and then I would summarize in one sentence everything that that psalm just said. Now understand, I wasn't trying to write some thesis to impress scholars. I wasn't looking for something to put on a bumper sticker. I was just looking for words and emotions that I was familiar with so I could translate that psalm. So I, I picked a few from what we've already done. Psalm 1, uh, it says, the people of Yahweh flourish because they love and practice the law. Psalm 27, when all hell breaks loose, Yahweh is my refuge. Psalm 23, because Yahweh is my shepherd, I don't worry about anything. Psalm 88, what was preached last week, sometimes it seems like I am more faithful to God than he is faithful to me. So all I did was read the psalm, and then in the side margin, I wrote in one sentence everything that said. Are you tracking so far? Then when that was through, I summarized as many as I could, and I clustered them. I started finding themes like anger, fear, reverence, confusion, sin, redemption. And I went through the Psalms now that I was familiar with them and then built them into clusters around different themes. So now when I'm running into people with different situations, I have a working knowledge of the language of the Psalms. Now, this isn't so I can quote a Psalm. It's so I can listen like the Psalmist listens. And I can resonate with people in a wider variety of situations. So everything rises or falls on how familiar we are with the scriptures. Last Sunday after I preached, I came off the platform and, and was uh, supposed to greet people. That's what's supposed to happen. And um, they're supposed to say, fine sermon, thank you for coming, goodbye. Um, but what happened was something different. The first person out said, would you pray for me? Um, I, uh, they just discovered this last week that the experimental medicine has failed. And so I think the cancer is going to win the day. So I'm trying to come to grips with uh, the last few weeks of my life and I'm trying to control them. I want them to go a certain way and I'm starting to feel that that's not gonna happen. 
person behind that person said, pray for me because they've stolen my church. I said, what did they do with it? She, they took all the religious symbols down and they painted everything black and they've made it a black box. The one behind them said, pray for me because I'm a 70-year-old woman and I am tired and frail, but I just got a call to missions. And I don't know if this body can even do missions anymore. One behind them said, please pray for me because I lost my children through a divorce. And by the way, have you met my girlfriend? Behind them was a social worker who said, pray for me because I go to work and I'm trying to represent Christ, but there is so many Christians in the workplace that are shouting anti-gay sentiments that it's poisoning the atmosphere. And I don't know how to navigate that. I'm trying to represent Jesus, but not be like the rest of them. And I don't know what to, you see what I mean? Every four minutes, the subject is changing and you can't always refer them. And you can't always wait until you figure it out. You can't say, hang on, I'm gonna Google that. We have to have a working knowledge of the scriptures so that when we go to draw on them, there is something in the reserves that we can draw from. Okay? I just finished Job when I was in Colorado. And the pattern in Job is that... um, His friends will speak for one chapter, then Job for two, friends for one, Job for two. And about halfway through this difficult book, Job starts his speeches by saying in one chapter, I've heard all this before. In the next chapter, he says, let me just finish before you go on mocking. In one chapter, he says, How much longer will you torment me? Because his friends are full of advice, you see. And when I read it, I thought to myself, how many times have I just started giving advice? And what the person was thinking was, how much longer will you torment me? I've heard all this before. You have your words, I have mine. We don't know which ones are better. But church, listen to me, and then I'll preach. When you refer to the words of Scripture, when you know the Scriptures, and you can reach for them in any situation, there is a power and a gravitas to the things that you say that is not your power. And so I urge us as followers of Christ, to be healers in a very difficult world. People are struggling, and they need a word from God, not just another idea. So there's a method that you might do. You might summarize them, then you might cluster them, and then you might become more familiar with them, and then as situations arise, you can reach for them and uh, watch God go to work. Are we good? Now we got to hurry. One of these clusters that are in the Psalms is a cluster of Psalms that deal with confession, forgiveness, and redemption. 
These are psalms that talk about a season in our lives when we have failed morally, we have sinned, we have disappointed ourselves and God, we have injured or harmed our personality, our organization, our team, our family is suffering now because of what we have done. There are seven Psalms that fit in this cluster. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 103, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. Seven different ways of confessing when we have done something wrong. A problem is that we frequently avoid the subject. Whenever we do something wrong, the tendency is to try and hide it or cover it up. Which interests me, really, because what it means is we have, every one of us, two tendencies born into us from the very first day, and they are at war. One is the tendency to sin, and the other is the tendency to hide. The tendency to sin is arising from evil, but the tendency to hide it is arising from good. Even as we are inclined to do what is wrong, we are equally inclined to find innocence. We seek innocence. So even though the good that is in me is tempted all the time to do what is wrong, the evil that is in me is tempted all the time to confess it. One of these two tendencies will win the day. The tendency to sin or the tendency to confess it. Uh, a few years ago, our church was involved in um, a ministry in town where we were helping women who were in sex trafficking to get out of it. As part of that ministry, we put a prayer box in the lobby of that facility where they were meeting, and um, we asked the women involved in that industry if they would submit a prayer request and put it in the box. What we got was um, uh, prayer requests for clothing, mostly. Please pray that my son will have clothes. By the way, it's size 12. They were looking for things. But one day, one of the women put a uh, prayer request in that box that was copied and sent to me, and uh, it... it went like this, please pray that I can be clean again. And when I read it, I noticed that she did not ask for forgiveness. She was asking for cleansing. 
That's different. She wanted purity, righteousness, soundness, integrity, goodness. She did not just want to be forgiven. Truth is, she's probably been forgiven a hundred times in her life or more. And she knew instinctively there is something deeper than forgiveness out there. And she wanted that. One of the tragedies in the modern church today is that we are seeking innocence, but we settle for forgiveness. And so, whenever we sin, we ask God to forgive us. Because it's as if we think there's this celestial account with all of our sins recorded and the ledger next to them that says either forgiven or unforgiven, and blessed is the person who dies with all of his sins forgiven. Note to self, what was lost in the Garden of Eden was not forgiveness. It was innocence. That's what you want. Forgiveness is simply a remedial step on the way to innocence. Are you tracking? So whenever you sin, remember, it isn't forgiveness you want. It's innocence. You'll settle for forgiveness because you want the slate wiped clean. But when you start reading these psalms of confession, you discover that the psalmist is after so much more than this. So let's walk through Psalm 32 real quick before I lead us in a confession. Do you have it open? The first two verses are like a beatitude. He uses the word happy, blessed, favored, lucky, got it made, is the person whose transgressions are carried. That's the Hebrew idea of forgiveness. Blessed or happy is the one who has sinned and God is carrying the grievance, not the one who did it. Happy is that person. He has given it to God and God still carries it. Somebody has to. He goes on to say, this person's sins have been covered. God has put his hand on them and he cannot even see them. And he goes on to say at the end of verse 2, and God does not count these things against him. There is no deceit in this person at all. He's innocent because God has completely forgotten the thing that he's done. That's the first two verses. Then the next two verses, verse 3 and 4, he starts talking about our tendency to hide whenever we do wrong. 
He said, when this happened to me, the first thing I did was I kept silent. I hid it. I didn't say anything. I just kept on going and acted like it was normal. Everybody does this. You know, we're all human. Then he says in verse five, I covered it up. I justified it. I blamed somebody else. Said it wasn't my fault. There was nothing else I could do. I just, they, they made me do it. But then he says in verse five, there was a moment where the bow broke and uh, I finally just came out with it and I said it to God. This is what I've done. It was the worst, best moment in my life. The moment I admitted to it, everything, everything, Listen to me, not just the things people accused me of, not just the things they said, we have evidence you did this. No, 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 no. I confessed everything. I said, oh, I, oh I've done that. <laughs> and there's more. And when I came out with it, immediately God forgave me. Now watch, that's verse five. In verse six and seven, the psalmist, the one confessing, will start talking to God. Keep reading. And in verses eight and nine, God will speak back to the psalmist. Why should you care? Because this almost never happens in the scripture. You are never allowed to go into ground zero where the confession is actually being done. But here in four verses, you can hear a dialogue between what the psalmist wants and what God is going to give him. And what the psalmist is praying for in verses six and seven is that God will protect him and will keep him from the rising waters. That God will listen while he may be found. And then... What God promises him in verses eight and nine is that he will instruct him and teach him in the way that he should go. I believe there is on every Sunday a number of people in our congregation who have sinned and are sinning still. I know this is a holiness church and so we're supposed to be over that. But, but you see, that's just the problem. The way that we handle that inside of our church is uh, in one of two ways. If you're a member of the Holiness Church, you, uh, you lie about them. Now, there's a nicer way to say it, but that's, uh, that's what it comes down to. What, what you do in the Holiness Church is uh, you profess to be holy, and then you promptly relabel every other transgression something else. That's an infirmity. It's a weakness. 
It's a personality flaw. I admit it's a wrinkle. Even though Jesus the Christ, who is your humanity, had none of these things. None of them. But you do. And the way around it is to say, well, it's an imperfection. That's what we do. Now, if you're from the Reformed, the Lutheran, Baptist, uh, uh, Presbyterian, some of you are, um, right now you're smirking. You're like, yeah, yeah, you tell them. Uh, your problem I was hoping to get out of here in a really good state of mind. Your problem is that you normalize it. You accept it. If the holiness person believes that he doesn't sin anymore ever, had a woman say, I haven't sinned in 30 years. I went, well, that's two. If the holiness person believes that they never do it, you believe that it's normal. You believe that you sin every day in word, thought, or deed. And that the only righteousness you have isn't your righteousness at all. It belongs to Jesus Christ. You're just borrowing it. So you say Jesus paid it all but you keep racking up the bill. What if there's a third way? What if there is a way to deal with sin in a way that it makes us better? What if we didn't have to deny it and we don't have to accept it? We could actually quit it. That's what Psalm 32 is calling for. Not simply the forgiveness of sin, verse 1, but the removal of deceit, verse 2. He's calling for songs of deliverance. <laughs> He's calling for God to use sin to teach him and instruct him in the way he should go. So rather than just getting the sin erased, he's leveraging the sin to get wiser about his own human nature and about this world. But that's a different conversation. See, as long as you're still trapped in, oh gosh, I just did it again, God forgive me, you won't get into the better stuff. The better stuff is to have long conversations with God about why we did something, not just what we did. It wasn't so much the act as it was the disposition. It was the deficiency that made it possible. No sin that you commit occurs Suddenly, randomly, out of thin blue air. They always come from a context of deficiency. 
deceived. So we have to have that conversation with God so he can instruct us. When you sin, here are five rules. I'm just going to list them and then we're going to go into confession. Rule number one. It's not what you did. It's what you do next. That will determine everything. If you hide it, you'll get worse. If you say it and confess it, you'll get better. Everything rests on what you do next, not on what you just did. God can redeem, listen to me, anything as long as you're honest. Rule number two. When you sin, it isn't a judge It's a father that you're dealing with. Y'all believe God is a father until you sin. Then all of a sudden, he goes onto the bench, and here comes a drama. How is God going to justify me according to the law? See? There you go again, turning everything into a ledger. No, no. I know who you're dealing with. You're dealing with a father who badly wants you to be in his image. And the image that you have of God when you sin is one of the most fundamental, important things about you. It is his nature to forgive if you've had a good daddy in this world you know this you never had to prove yourself to him you never had to impress him you can't impress him he already wants what's best for you rule number three I've said it already but here it is when you sin It isn't forgiveness that you want, it's innocence. It's not pardon that you're seeking, you're after instruction. Uh, Some years ago I had lunch with Tony Dungy because uh, Terry Monday knows everybody. And in that conversation, I remember asking him, What do you do when a player blows it and it costs you a touchdown? Maybe the game. I never forget the answer. I said, the thing about you I notice is you never lose your cool. You're calm and collected. You just lost and you're calm and collected. He said, I generally work the player through three questions. They never change. Question number one, 
What happened out there? What did you do wrong? He said, if he can't tell me, the problem is worse than I thought. Question number two, what should you have done? <laughs> Again, if he can't tell me, the problem is worse than I thought. And question number three, what are you gonna do next time? And if he can tell me, he's back in the game. And I've started to wonder if that's not a really good practical way to deal with sin when it comes into our lives. What happened there? What did I do wrong? What should I have done that I did not do? And what will I do next time? Now, get back in the game. Rule number four, because it's never the act or the consequence, it's the predisposition you should worry about. Your problem sometimes is not that you sin, it's that you don't learn from it. And so you keep repeating it. Which leads to the last one. Rule number five. It's not just what you confess. It's when you confess it. The psalmist said, do not be like a horse or a mule that runs away until you put a bit or a bridle in its mouth. Then he comes back to you. Think of a runaway dog. The second you release that leash, he's gone. And you bring him back to you by strapping a leash on him. The psalmist says, you want to be the kind of person who confesses before the bit in the bridle. Don't make someone confront you with evidence of what you did wrong. Learn a free spirit of confession so you don't need evidence. It comes from within and not from without. Indeed, if you wait for someone to present you with evidence and then you only confess to what they presented, you have already undermined the trust. The one who can be trusted is the one who knows what he did before anyone else saw it. So naturally, this morning, I thought we would close with confession. Some of you, as I said, maybe have, um, how to say it, years ago, you used to confess something in hopes that God would just sort of magically take it away. 
and he didn't. And so over time, you've started to normalize it. You've sort of annexed it into your human nature and said, well, this must be all right because God didn't take it away. Others of you um, are very, very conscious of the sins that you've committed and you've confessed them and then you've confessed them and confessed them again. God might forgive me, you say, but I cannot forgive myself. Others um, are maybe just laissez-faire about the whole thing. Say, well, you know, the air is human. Except that the more you err, the less human you are. So this morning, God is calling us to be free and open, full-throated in our confessions. And I think it begins by having us identify the thing we want to confess. I want to encourage you not to confess four or five things or even two or three. Find one, only one. You say, well, my whole life, we'll find one. It should be easier for you then. If you look hard into your life and you say, well, I just can't find anything at all. If we asked your spouse, what might they say? So start there. Start with the people that know you really, really well. They have no trouble with being honest. Take it and say, maybe that's it. We're not looking for something that's morbid or some kind of foul disease at all. We're just looking for things in our lives that are not becoming of the people of Jesus Christ.